Please join with me in prayer. Loving God, as we begin another water story, we give thanks for the symbol of life and healing that water brings. Open our hearts and our minds for what you have for us this day. Amen. My grandmother and granddad homesteaded on the Mojave Desert in the 1920s. They then purchased an alfalfa ranch in Lancaster, California, where they raised their four children while sharing the home with my great-grandparents. They were two of the founding members of the Roosevelt Community Church, where tumbleweeds regularly piled up near the entrance of the church. But I had forgotten about my grandmother's role working at the polling site in Antelope Valley until I was listening to the painfully outrageous experience of Wandra Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman. Both were targeted by Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, who accused them of pulling fake ballots from a suitcase hidden under the tables at a ballot counting center in Georgia. Every aspect of their lives was upheavaled by the lies of powerful leaders. Her mother, Ruby, was forced to leave her home for several months. Their lives were put at risk over and over again. I was touched by Shea Moss's memories of voting days when, as a young child, she went with her grandmother to vote. And even as a young child, she sensed just how important the day and the task was for her grandmother. She remembered being told how, in the past, her people were not allowed to vote. This week, we listened to Cassidy Hutchinson's truth-telling as support staff to the most powerful men of the White House. Now she, too, is enduring threats. Today's Old Testament lesson presents the key figure of one who was moneyed and powerful. But it was the one considered invisible who held the truth. Naaman whose name means pleasant, lived up to his name. He denied the lesions on his body for years. I suspect he learned to keep his gloves on as much as possible in public. But when the disease began spreading, he could no longer deny. All of his energy went into his job. He focused on proving himself and retaining his position as commander of the army, an army that had served Syria well in times of conflict. However, they had entered into a peaceful era. If one is competent enough, no one has the audacity to even bring up the issue of leprosy. In his time, leprosy was a term used for any number of skin conditions. He had too many pieces of brass on his shoulder to be questioned. It seems to be a perpetual truth 
that those at the bottom of society know those at the top far more than those at the top ever know those who serve them. Naaman was no exception. There was a young Jewish girl in his household who had been taken captive during one of his military raids on Israel. As is often the case, she remains nameless. We're told that she did her communicating through Naaman's wife. She said, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of leprosy. It was quite an audacious suggestion. Naaman had the best HMO in the kingdom. However, Naaman's wife was savvy. She was political. Naaman made an appointment at the palace and left with a letter in his pocket to the king of Israel. He went to the bank of Syria and did what no financial planner would ever suggest. He cashed in a bunch of CDs and went on a spending spree. It was pure guesswork as to what a prophet expected for a cure. He loaded his chariot with piles of, piles of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. When Naaman showed up at the home of the king of Israel, his majesty responded by having what we might call a meltdown. He read the letter, and without any discussion regarding the letter, he began ripping his clothing. I suspect he thought it was a trick. He was probably assuming that an attack was coming, and he probably believed that he was being given notice that he would begin to lose even more of his kingdom. That kind of activity has a way of being leaked to the press. The townsfolk were baffled as to what to make of the palace encounter. When Elisha got the news, he sent word to the king. He didn't spend a lot of time on niceties. He cut to the chase, asking, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, Naaman had to have been perplexed as to why the prophet Elisha didn't meet him at the palace. After getting directions from the palace concierge, his entourage began their trip to the home of the prophet. The neighborhood was no gated community. When they came to the humble home, Naaman sent in a messenger while he began to untie his bags of goods, ready for a very generous display of payment for his pending cure. For someone who fully understood entitlement, having a servant come out to demand that he go wash in the Jordan seven times sent Naaman reeling. He didn't even meet the prophet. There was no hospitality just a servant telling the commander of the Syrian army to go to some dingy, shallow, muddy Jordan River. His chariot held enormous wealth, and in his anger, he began yelling out the names of rivers in Syria that were better, cleaner, more beautiful 
than the one the messenger had to offer. Once again, it was the one with no power who best understood the one with power. Naaman's own servants conjoled, calmed him down, ultimately convinced him to step down into the Jordan. After all, what did he have to lose? He slung aside his clothes as he headed for the mucky water. He stepped into the deepest part of the water and let it all be buried. I suspect that he let go of his persona. He let go of his image that had kept him from losing his job. He emptied himself. He dunked himself once, twice. He let go of his wealth, his medals. He dunked again. He let go of his prestigious office, his awards, his barn full of chariots and horses. None of it mattered any longer. Seven times he dunked himself. Something shifted internally. He could not explain it. He opened his eyes and gingerly began to touch his face and slid his hands over his body, restored, restored like that of a child, offering hope for a new beginning. Healing of the leprosy of isms, whether it be racism, sexism, or ageism, is hard work. And we are learning that once they have been in the process of healing, we still need to tend them because they can be undone, tossed aside, and can radically turn lives backwards. The leprosy of exclusion is a demanding disease. I can appreciate the words of civil rights leader Fannie Lou Hamer, who said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. When I was an interim pastor in Ashland, Oregon, I became aware of Southern Oregon University's quest to work with diversity trainer and filmmaker Lee Mun Wah. I remember being so touched by his story. On a TED Talk, he tells the story about his Chinese parents and how they spent two months, two months processing what to name him, and then they gave him the name Gary. The audience laughs. And then he describes the emotional leprosy that comes with racism. He shared the anguish of not having the respect to have one's differences valued. He tells the story of being six years old and taking his lunch to school. He left his home so excited to have his special lunch in the traditional Chinese basket. And he hid it under his shirt because he knows that the children will be envious. And then he learns the reality of life in school. The first thing he deals with is students wondering where that awful smell is coming from. Listening to his story, one can feel the weight of not belonging. 
By noon, first grader Gary, who can't go by his Chinese name because it's considered unpronounceable, takes his treasured lunch and his chopsticks and he dumps them in the garbage can. It is his first exposure to the leprosy that comes with racism. I remember Lee Manois talking about how Reverend Jesse Jackson believes that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 a.m. Sunday morning, but he disagrees. He believes that the most segregated hour is our school lunchrooms. He speaks to his audiences about how we celebrate our differences, but we don't practice differences. He tells how when he began teaching in schools, he chose to sit with the children rather than eating in the faculty lunchroom. The question he asks his classes are, when people look at you, what do they see and what don't they see? Lee Manois shared how he and his Dutch-born wife adopted a son from Guatemala because they felt he would fit in better with a Chinese father. When the son started school, the teachers were so very impressed with his academic achievements. They would refer to his son as the Asian student who excels. However, when he got older, he explained to his teachers that he was from Guatemala. The comments on academics ended. From then on, the only comments made were how he was doing on the soccer field. Our country is in need of healing. It was the voices of the powerless that made a difference in Naaman's life. It is the daring, courageous, truth-telling voices of two women who have endured the racist leprosy of our nation's leaders who we must thank for telling their stories. They have paid a severe price for supporting the freedom to vote in our country. At a time when Many of our nation's leaders have banded together to cling to lies regarding the outcome of our voting system. We cherish those who have little power, yet dare to tell the story of witnessing lies. As with every story from our faith album, we are invited to discern what we are being called to let go of. We are called to discern if there is any leprosy in our own lives that needs to be healed. We acknowledge that it is often difficult to say yes to the call of God, which by its very nature often demands that changes be made. And it is often scary. And it pushes us when the Spirit nudges us to do the work of healing the leprosy of isms and the reality of denied climate change demands that we immerse ourselves into those healing waters over and over again. Elisha provides us with the important lesson 
of welcoming the stranger without insisting that they first embrace our theological beliefs or traditions. Healing of any ism by its very nature is a long, intentional journey. Therefore, we must be intentional about our social times with one another. I was reminded this week of the surprise I experienced when I learned that one of the first structures that is put in place in refugee camps is making sure that someone is in charge of parties. <laughs> Leaders in refugee camps know that they cannot survive incredible hardships without the joy of fun, laughter, and play. For it is our relationship with God and one another that will sustain us for the long haul. It is the gift of the glue within community that molds us and helps us to have the courage to do our work. May God grant us the empowerment and grace needed to do the work to which we have been called. It's easy to fall into a sense of hopelessness. It's hard to remember that God calls us to trust. A community of faith supports our need to be accountable to our faith. May we take the time to deepen our friendships and enjoy the supportive gifts of one another along the journey. May it be so. Amen.